Hello, I'm Kate Fisher. Welcome to Milkshakes for Marley, the podcast that tells the survival stories of blood product recipients to thank donors and to encourage people to donate blood, plasma, platelets or breast milk. If you have ever been a donor, you could have been the one to save the life of the guests that we profile each week here on the Milkshakes for Marley podcast. And becoming a donor in the future means that you too could become a part of this story. Milkshakes for Mali is the name of the lifeblood team of donors who were inspired to donate plasma and other blood products after hearing the story of our amazing five-year-old daughter Mali, who has seronegative autoimmune encephalitis. For her, plasma infusion is both life-preserving and when she relapses, it is life-saving. To hear Marley's story, please go back to episode one in your podcast feed. Today's guest is Australian Paralympic dressage rider Emma Booth. Emma was involved in a horrific car accident in 2013 and her life was saved by a blood transfusion. Her life, however, would never be the same as she went from competing at a very high level in her equestrian discipline of eventing to being an L2 paraplegic in a wheelchair with a severe spinal cord injury. You will notice that the audio quality is a bit variable in this episode and in this crazy time of COVID we're doing everything via Zoom and we're just doing the best that we can so please forgive us for that. You will hear us refer to a few different equestrian terms that you may not be familiar with. For context, eventing, dressage, show jumping and cutting are all equestrian disciplines. The FAI Emma refers to is the International Equestrian Federation and the NCHA is the National Cutting Horse Association of Australia. Most importantly, you will hear Emma refer to her dance partner, Zidane. This is the horse that she has ridden at two Paralympic Games. I hope you enjoy my chat with Emma. Okay, hi Emma and welcome to the Milkshake Somali podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to chat with you today. Oh, so welcome. Um, so this is take two. We had a crack at this interview last week, um, but we had to reschedule. You had to get a vet out to one of your horses. Um, is everything okay? And importantly, how big was your vet bill? Ah, uh, you don't want to know what, how big my vet bill is at the moment, but uh, or ever. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, he's fine. It's just one of those things. They. You always have um, I do always have paddock boots on the horses, and then the one time you take them off for five minutes, they manage to knock themselves and cut their legs. So I think it's fine. He's on antibiotics at the moment, but um, yeah, hopefully it just that'll sort it out and it'll be fine. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Something will happen in the middle of the night or on um, Christmas Eve, or yeah, it's, it's always when it, whenever there's whenever there's X-rays involved, you know the vet bill is going to be big. So, yeah. <laughs> Never a good thing. <laughs> Okay, I asked you to come on today. Um, I actually remember seeing the coverage of your accident um, and thinking that that is something that could so easily have happened to me and my family growing up. So I think your story really struck a chord with a lot of people that I grew up with. Um, I grew up on the back of a horse. We lived in and out of our truck going to different shows every weekend. Um, I mostly did pony club and show jumping and shows. Um, we did a little bit of eventing, but we very much just dabbled <laughs> in that arena. But I guess yeah. I probably had grew up doing quite similar things to what you were doing on you know, your weekends. Um, can you tell me what you remember from your accident? Uh, yeah, well, a friend and I were coming home from a horse competition in Albury and uh, we came back via the Melbourne Highway and 
yeah, I remember it was about, it must have been about 8.30 at night and it was dark. Um, the roads were wet, so it had been raining, I think. And uh, yeah, basically we were coming around a corner on the Melbourne Highway and a truck had jackknifed, lost control and um, came onto our side of the road. And I wasn't driving, I was a passenger, but um, I just remember seeing the truck's headlights coming towards us and thinking, oh God, this is like happening. There was nowhere that court could move to the side or try and get out of the way because it was um, like there was a rail on the side of the road. And anyway, we had a head-on collision and I blacked out on, on impact. Um, and I don't know how long I was unconscious for, but I woke up, there was a dog barking in the back seat and the whole car was um, shaking. I remember it took me a little while to sort of register why the whole car was just rocking back and forth. And then I realized it was because one of the horses in the float was thrashing and moving the whole car. And yeah, it was, it was just awful. Like I do, I remember a lot about it, but there's also some bits that are very catchy and have had to been sort of pieced together by other people. Um, you know, the, the first people on the scene and all that sort of thing, the ambulance, there's been so many connections that we've found out over the years that they were like, oh, this, this person knew that person and we were there. And yeah, you know, at the time I had no idea, but yeah, it sort of um, all gets pieced together over time and you, you remember more and more. But um, yeah, I think I was in the car for about an hour before the ambulance uh, were able to remove me from the vehicle. And then I was taken straight to the Royal Melbourne into ICU there, straight into um, a number of surgeries. I think I was uh, put under general anesthetic for my um, abdominal surgery. I had life-saving abdominal surgery because I had severe internal bleeding. And then I think I went straight from that surgery. They kept me under anesthetic. And then I went into my second surgery, which was for my spine. Um, so yeah, it was um, hours and hours. And again, that time for me is quite, obviously I was under anesthetic, but even coming out of that, you know, like it was very, um, a bit fuzzy. And I think for my family at that time, that was probably the hardest bit for them, you know, um, just waiting to hear whether I survived or not, you know, like I think that was just hours and hours of them waiting to, to see um, what the outcome was because there was a real um, concern that I probably wasn't going to make it so yeah I feel very lucky to still be here. Yeah. So, yeah. Does that put your disability into a different perspective as well I guess if you're born with a disability I don't know you might resent it a little bit more or something but your disability is the result of you surviving something that you could very well have died from. Do you think that's a different experience of disability or I guess you don't know what it's like to have it the other way? Oh, look, absolutely it is, you know, and I have met a number of people over the years since my accident, um, you know, people with disabilities that uh, have acquired those from birth or, you know, childhood. So, uh, you, you know, you definitely have that sort of discussion with those people. And mm. it, it's, it was, it was for me, something that I tried early on to put into perspective and just keep thinking that I was lucky and, and everything that had happened, you know, like even my level of injury when I was finally um, out of the Royal Melbourne and taken to the Talbot, which is a specific spinal cord injury ward, uh, you know, and I was meeting other patients, you know, this is when I, probably a few months into my rehab, 
meet other patients on the ward and they would be quads or higher level or you know couldn't get out of bed and and that even in itself just made me go well I'm an L2 which is a very low level injury which mm -hmm. means I still have function of my core and upper body so even that you know you sort of looked at that to go oh my god that's so I feel very lucky and and mm -hmm. it could have been could have been so much worse and I think that's not to say that you don't go through the same thought processes of you know being somebody that's able-bodied and having experienced all these things like running and eventing and mm. you know just things that everybody sort of takes for granted uh to then lose that and have that all those things taken away from you it's definitely something that you have to really process and it takes time to process and you do go through a bit of a phase of thinking I can't do this I can't do that anymore I can't do this anymore and you hard to work to shift that to I can still do this I can still do that you know and and try and just keep your energy and and mindset in an, in that positive way rather than looking at the the negatives mm -hmm. so and that's definitely easier said than done yeah absolutely I'm sure it's yeah. something as well that will yeah will change over time and through your recovery and through the rest of your life as you go through different stages in your life um, yeah. So after your accident, you spent four months in hospital with injuries, including a fractured skull, a punctured lung, a fractured sternum, a broken ankle, severe abdominal injuries and internal bleeding. Um, do you remember giving consent to receive the blood products that saved your life? No, I think no. that um, all of the paperwork and consent things were mum and dad. Yeah, sure. So were they able yeah. to be with like where were they when all of this happened uh, so they experience? were they were at the royal melbourne um with not with me but uh they were there and mm -hmm. from my understanding they were basically just in a in a sort of semi-private waiting room mm -hmm. while i was in surgery and they had limited contact you know the, the nurses were fantastic and and gave them as much information as they could mm -hmm. but obviously like i was in surgeries for hours and hours so um, you know, there's only so much information they can give at a time. Uh, but yeah, they, I think they got to see me. It must have been after my second surgery, because again, this is where for me it all becomes a blur and it's I'm relying on, yeah. on, you know, what they've told me. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it wasn't until after my second surgery that mum and dad were allowed to come in and see me, but I was still heavily, you know, um, drug affected. Mm. Um, and yeah, but again, I think that for them that was a really tough time. Very yes, difficult to was. go yeah. through that. Yeah, and we always say to guests on the podcast as well that this is not a medically and scientifically factually correct podcast. This is just your recollections and your experience yeah. of what happens. So please don't yeah. feel like any of this. It's just your experience of it and the way yeah. that you remember it. So yeah, yeah, don't worry about getting any of that correct. Okay. <laughs> um. So after sustaining an injury like this, it would be understandable if you chose to not continue with your equestrian career um, and you wanted to leave that world altogether. Um, but you did quite the opposite of this. And I've read that within two weeks of your accident that you'd made up your mind that you wanted to compete as a para-athlete. Um, how important was having that goal in your rehabilitation program? Hugely important. Uh, I think looking back on it now, you know, I'm, I'm nearly eight years uh, post-accident and I think that the passion that I had for the horses, the love that I had for horses, 
uh, and the opportunities that the para equestrian world offered me really saved my life, um, you know, and they played the biggest role in my physical and emotional uh, or mental rehabilitation. Um, absolutely. I think that goal just gave my new life purpose and, and meaning. Whereas I feel had I not gone down that path, it would have been quite easy to get a bit lost in, um, you know, what I was going to do from, from here. So yeah, they definitely just changed my life. So when I told my family that I was interviewing you, they were all so excited and we have, you know, we all remember talking after you had your accident and we saw coverage of it and saying, you know, that could so easily have been our family coming home from a show on a Sunday afternoon. Mm -hmm. um, and they told me about a story of something incredible that you've done that I didn't know about, but I had a look on the socials. So they, so my sister and her husband and my mum, they moved out of the pony club show jumping world into quarter horses and cutting. There's been some dabbling in camp drafting at times. The smile on your face tells me that you know exactly which story I'm about to ask you about. Um, <laughs> and they were very, very impressed and sent me some video of you riding a horse called Time's Up. Um, one of the things that is so fascinating about equestrian discipline is that it's one of the very few sports where men and women compete against each other equally and it made me wonder watching some of that footage of you on Time's Up what it was like to be riding alongside able-bodied athletes again and that comparison and yeah if you can just tell me a little bit about that story that'd be awesome. Yeah so I was really lucky um, to have a bit of a partnership where I was an ambassador for Willinga Park up mm -hmm. in New South Wales and uh, Terry Snow the owner he's obviously um, heavily involved in quarter horses and and the cutting scene and mm -hmm. he holds big um cutting shows every year and you know people from all over Australia come to compete at, at Willinga Park and mm -hmm. uh, I was there for one of the shows and um yeah basically got offered to have a ride on this horse Time's Up and he's uh, imported from America this beautiful stallion um it was just such a gorgeous gorgeous horse and Anyway, they, I think because we, I was doing it with Brett Parbury, who was the rider for Willinger at the time, the dressage rider, and they wanted us to basically go in between one of the cutting um, classes and do a bit of a show for, for the audience. And so they told me only about half an hour before we were going to do it that, oh, we'll put you on this quarter horse. And I'm going, oh, my gosh, okay, like. <laughs> this could be this could be interesting I'm doing it in front of all these people and like this could just be a disaster mm. anyway, so they chucked me on this horse and he was so calm and he was he was beautiful I think I literally had about five ten minutes in the round yard where the dressage stables are just to get a bit of a feel before we then had to head over to the main arena and I went in with Brett who was in his you know dressage gear and he was going to ride through his freestyle and then they wanted me to try and do a bit of stuff with this cutting horse and um, in front of, yeah, I don't know, a few thousand people. And he was just so, you know, to pick up on my style of riding as quickly as he did, it was actually yeah. incredible. And for, I think for me too, because he was quite a different feeling to the dress. Yeah, I yeah, yeah, I that yeah. yeah. Um, that was, yeah, incredible and so much fun. And um, mm. although I, I was in a, a stock saddle, like I didn't have my saddle there and oh, I was no. in theirs. And we, we sort of um, managed to like tie my feet in and I think we even put some Velcro straps over my legs just like 
you know, real makeshift sort of stuff. Yeah. Like it wasn't at all FEI approved. It would have been, <laughs> yeah, not. Um, uh, but it, it, this this stock saddle, because it, it wasn't as squishy as mine or something, yeah, yeah. It rubbed my bum so badly <laughs> that I had these massive sores on my bum for like weeks after having had this ride on the horse. And I was like, oh, God. Well, my family were very, very impressed. And after seeing it all, apparently everyone was just amazed. It just wasn't what people were expecting from that presentation. And it just, yeah. it's just such a testament to your strength of character as well to just get on and give that a crack in front of all of those yeah, people. And it's but inspirational. Think, you know, that's, well, that's a big thing too. I just, I think for me, how I've definitely gone about life since the accident is just, you know, when you're presented with opportunities, taking just taking them, you know, you, life will throw you different things um, that you, you know, can't prepare for, but you're not going to know where that's going to lead or what's going to happen unless you say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the fear of failure often prevents people from actually saying yes to opportunities. Mm. Um, I mean, that's a perfect example. If I was too worried about the fact that it might not have got gone right and that, you know, I was worried about failing in front of these people that were watching and said, no, like I, I wouldn't have had that amazing experience of mm. riding this incredibly beautiful imported stallion, yeah. you know, American stallion that was a cutting cutting horse that I think a lot of the people there watching who were in the Western community, yeah. they would have killed to have a sit on this yeah. gorgeous that, horse, you know. That so, was very much the way the story was told Yeah, to me. <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, you just think, well, this, this, if you have that fear of failure and you say no to those opportunities, then you know, you, you don't know what, what might have been and, and what could happen. So that's a big part of, yeah, I think how I sort of, the outlook mm-hmm. I have on my life now is just always saying saying yes to opportunities that are presented. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Well, that leads in beautifully to our next question. So um, what is your proudest achievement since becoming a blood product recipient after your accident? Mm-hmm. You can pick a few. Yeah, that's a tricky one. Um, there's a there's a number of the things that I've achieved with Zidane and and you know with the help of my family and friends and everything and because I couldn't have done any of the things that I've done or accomplished without help mm-hmm. um and that's another really important thing to me is um you know asking for help when when you need it and for people to know that it's okay to ask for help that's not mm-hmm. a weakness that's um you know you looking to people for their strengths that are going to help your weaknesses you know that's that's not a weakness that's just um smart yeah (laughs) Um, yeah so yeah that's a big thing for me but I suppose um definitely getting to the Paralympics you know that's the the pinnacle and being in the village with that these other amazing athletes para-athletes that have all overcome their own adversity and Mm -hmm. and um have had their own disabilities and and how they've gone about getting into the sports that they have and you hear all these amazing stories you know and knowing that that Paralympic village not everybody gets to experience that that environment you know so again that's something you feel very proud privileged and honored to be a part of Uh, I certainly did Um, and that was a real highlight of going to the Paralympics that that community and and yeah the athletes there and the passion and love that they have for their sports and you can Mm. see that in you know in your in yourself so that was incredible um but I think probably with Zidane my horse the 
oh, actually, there's a, there is a couple again. I was yeah. going to say the most emotional, and then I remembered Tokyo, the final um, freestyle that I did in Tokyo, knowing that was when he was going to retire. That was his last dance. I came out of that yeah. arena in tears, and my I coach think, was in tears. I and, think most of us were in tears uh, watching yeah, that. That was pretty special. That was, <laughs> that, was an, that was an emotional one, but also uh, the World Equestrian Games in Tryon in America in 2018 um the freestyle that i rode there was um to the man from snowy river music oh, wow so this beautiful australian theme and the year before like literally not even 12 well just sorry just on 12 months before we were overseas Zidane had colic and we nearly lost him to oh. this colic surgery and the journey that 12 months of the colic surgery to then getting him across the world and competing on the world stage the ups and downs that we had to go through in that particular part of our journey was huge. It was incredibly emotional. You know, there were so many highs and lows. There were so many uncertainties about, are we going to get there? But then we get there. Is it going to go well? Is he going to hold up physically to this? You know, there were so many things that sort of could have stopped us from getting there. And we finally performed this freestyle on the world stage and we just nailed it. We hit every um piece of music yeah. every movement he was just with me and it was incredible and I feel like that that ending that freestyle and and knowing um how well he performed for me and how hard mm. he tried for me given everything he'd been through in that last last 12 months yeah that was a really um emotional performance so that's yeah. I still remember that feeling of finishing that test that was a real highlight in in our career with him definitely so one of the reasons that I asked that question I've interviewed um, a few different athletes um, for the podcast and there's a few more episodes coming out early next year with different athletes and I shamelessly steal that question um, from Libby Trickett's All That Glitters podcast um, and she tells the stories of retired athletes and I think after just hearing that about Sudan, I think that she should interview you just doing a shameless <laughs> shout out to Lib um, to talk about <laughs> his retirement from being an elite athlete because yeah, that would be yeah. an incredible episode so yeah, I'm up after we finish recording this because I want to hear more yeah. about that story <laughs> <laughs> yeah well the horses play such a huge role in you know the equestrian um journey and mm. getting there just yeah, they're 50% of the team. So yeah. yeah. And total little side note, we got married. Um, the music that we had playing as we I was getting ready to walk down the aisle. And then after we got married was the man from Snowy River soundtrack. So oh, there's plenty of crossovers. Um, so what would you like to say to the blood donors who saved your life that day? Um, and anyone who's thinking about becoming a blood donor? Uh, I guess, first of all, I would like to say thank you. Uh, I actually myself recently um, donated blood for the first time and uh, it was actually a far more emotional, uh, cathartic experience than I think I had anticipated mm -hmm. um, because obviously, you know, I knew that I had had blood transfusions that, that saved my life um, mm -hmm. ultimately and without the people that had donated that blood, you know, I wouldn't be here today. So when I actually went and did it myself and, and was there and, you know, you're surrounded by all these other people that are donating, mm -hmm. it was just this incredible feeling of, oh my God, what they did was so selfless 
uh, thing that you can do that has such a huge impact on so many people's lives. Mm. Um, and that really hit home for me when I was when I was donating not long ago. So uh, I would be saying to anybody that is able to, and I know that there are people that, you know, for certain reasons they can't, mm -hmm. but if you can donate because the lives that you can touch and save and the people that you can impact from such a simple, small, easy task, you know, it, there's, I don't think the only feeling you can get from that is rewarding you and why, how wouldn't you? So that would yeah. be my thing. Um, yeah, just a huge thank you to the people that have donated um, because as, as we said, ultimately that saved my life, but then mm. for anyone that's thinking about it or, or wanting to, just do it, go in. It's so easy. The, the staff are so lovely and they make it easy. So, you know, if you're not doing it because you're a bit nervous or, or something, which I understand some people can be with needles, but mm. they're so good. The staff are amazing and they just completely at ease. So, um, yeah, don't worry about any of that and just do it. And so, yeah, if there's someone that's listening to this episode that was a blood donor, in Victoria roughly eight years ago, however long it's been since your accident, um, they could very well have been the person that saved your life that day and also yeah, provided yeah. the safety net um, to make sure that you could have those other life-saving surgeries that you had as well, because unless you've got the right amount yeah. of blood product, you can't actually have those surgeries. So it would have provided yeah, a safety absolutely. net for a lot of the other treatment and stuff that you had as well. Yeah, definitely, absolutely. And I, you know, they're, the surgeries that I had were so extensive. Um, yeah, I think it wouldn't have been possible, mm. as you said. So yeah, yeah, they did save my life for sure. Mm. And um, it's you know it's really lovely. Like I still keep in touch with my spinal surgeon and and my ICU nurse that was looking after me um, during all those surgeries. Like yeah, those people touch mm. your life forever and it's kind of nice having that um, connection with them too and knowing now how I've almost uh, given them, you know, that bit of satisfaction as well yeah. in their life, you know, they, they follow my journey yeah. and, and it's, yeah, it's really lovely. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, today you've become part of the Milkshakes for Marley community and part of our daughter Marley's journey as well, because um, blood donors are literally what keep her alive. Um, so when she relapses with, um, acute autoimmune encephalitis, plasma infusion is what saves her life. Um, and every infusion of plasma that she has in between is life preserving. So people will hear you talk today and hopefully that inspires them to go and donate blood. And that could very much help to keep our family together as well. So I think, yeah. well, uh, you know, yeah, as soon as you asked if I'd be on the podcast and I looked into her journey and it was a no-brainer for me, absolutely. So the more I can share this uh, amazing family story, the better. Yeah, so, amazing. Yeah. Beautiful. I think that's a beautiful place to leave it. Thank you so much for being on our okay. podcast today. Awesome. And no worries. I absolutely love yeah. it. Loved it. And yeah. Thank you. What has really stuck with me after this interview with Emma is her statement about living without the fear of failure. And it is my hope that she does find a new dance partner that takes her all the way through to the Brisbane Olympics in 2032 so that we can see her compete on home soil. I can't even imagine what an emotional experience that would be for all of the health professionals who saved her life and helped with her rehabilitation to the point of her representing her country at multiple Paralympic Games. 
And of course, she never would have made it through that first night had it not been for Australian blood donors. If you donated blood in Melbourne in early 2013, you could have been the one of the many people who saved Emma's life on that fateful Sunday night. And this episode is for you. Nothing feels more Australian like the modern demonstration of mateship than donating blood or breast milk and this product being used to keep another Australian alive. Our daughter is still alive today because of this incredible selfless gift and it is my privilege to create a space for others to tell their stories and to give thanks. This podcast is written and presented by me, Kate Fisher. Today's guest was Australian Paralympian Emma Booth. Marley's dad, my lovely husband, Jeff Fisher, did the audio production for this episode. To make an appointment to donate plasma and other blood products in Australia, please go to www.lifeblood.com.au and we would love it if you could add your donation to the Milkshakes for Marley Lifeblood team tally. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review and share this episode with a friend. If you are a blood product recipient and you would like to share your story, please contact us through the Milkshakes for Mali Instagram or Facebook pages. We are also happy to take any questions that you may have and address them as part of the weekly podcast. Thank you for joining us for today's episode and for being part of the Milkshakes for Mali community. And as always, I will leave the final word to Mali. Thank you for my prayers, Mark.